Father, impress your will upon our hearts. Impress your, your thoughts upon our hearts. Arrest our sin and our, our life of, of uh, independence, Father. Our desire to do as we care to do. Even as we call you Lord, we do our own desires at times. Draw us closer to you, Father. Give, give us something to think about when we concern ourselves with our lives here on, on this earth, Father. Give us something that will give us reason to take inventory of who we are. Are we listening? Are we following, Father? And then, Father, inspire us by what you've written in this letter to, to understand our position in Christ. For only by knowing what you have for us and what you have already done for us, Father, only by that can we rise above the temptations of a life and in a world that causes us to think there's so much we don't have and gives us so much reason for concern, for making comparisons to others, for jealousy and for strife, things, Father, that are not a part of a life of someone who walks by the Spirit. We don't want that anymore, Father. It's in our lives and we all know it and we don't like it. And we wish, Father, you would help us rise above it. And your letter, Father, is uh, an instrument in, in your hands to carve away the sin in our heart and to purify us. And I pray, Lord, we would feel that change in our heart even now. And that we'd walk in what we learn. Thank you, Father, for this counsel this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. After that long introduction last week, uh, let's just dive right into Paul's letter. And since I spent that entire lesson taking on the background of the letter and so on, let's, let's just go directly to verse 1. So Ephesians 1, 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And salutations are always that part of the letter that we have to read, but then we move on very quickly from, and, and that's natural. But there's always something there to be found, and no different this morning. Paul introduces himself in a very customary way. If you've read his letters at all, you notice that he's using things here in a very similar fashion, always identifying himself to the readers, speaking as an apostle, and so on. Here he says he was an apostle by the will of God, identifying himself first by his Greek name, Paul, because he's writing to a Greek audience. His original name was Saul. In fact, Saul and Paul are just the same name. Saul is the Hebrew name. Paul is the Greek version of the same name. Like, for example, we would say John in English and in Spanish it's Juan. But it's the same name. Here you see the same kind of thing going on between Saul and Paul. But he very specifically uses his Greek name here, Paulus in Greek. He writes it that way because Paul was the apostle, the Jewish apostle, that Christ sent as a missionary to the Gentile world. And Paul embraced that calling wholeheartedly. So he reminds his audience, I'm your apostle, Paul. And then he says to this audience, he possessed the authority of an apostle. Now I've covered apostles here in the past. I won't go through the whole of it again this morning. But just to remind you, an apostle is a very special member of the body of Christ. You cannot be an apostle just because you call yourself one. Although there are men today in the church who like to throw that name around. I've even had one guy introduce himself to me with a business card. And on the business card it said Apostle. Oh, that's pretty cool. I wonder if John and Paul and Peter carried the same card. It doesn't work that way. An Apostle is a man commissioned personally by an appearance of Christ. Through a personal appearing of Christ. If Jesus has not stood before you, you are not an Apostle. And apostles had unique authority, and they had unique power to bring the gospel to unreached areas. They authored New Testament scripture. They are, in effect, you could call them the New Testament prophets. 
And to demonstrate they had that office and they had the authority of an apostle, they could perform supernatural acts of healing, raising bodies from the dead and the like, things that you and I cannot do, things that are not common in the body of Christ. That was their way of authenticating that they had the apostolic gift. Once John, the longest living apostle that we know of, once he died at the end of the first century, the church has no more apostles, nor will we have any more apostles, for they've fulfilled the purpose of apostolic leadership. That is, they established the church in its origins in the beginning, and they wrote the New Testament. Once those two things had been done, the church was on its way, and the New Testament canon was complete, you don't need any more apostles. And he's never created any more since then. The first apostles, obviously, were the men who followed Jesus before he died, and then there were a few more men commissioned as apostles after the Lord died and rose. Paul was one of those apostles commissioned by the risen Lord. It's still the Lord. He's still appearing. He's just appearing in his resurrected form now as opposed to the one he had before he died. But remember who Paul was before that moment. Remember Paul was the guy persecuting the church. He personally stood by and approved of Stephen's martyrdom, of Stephen's killing. And so it was Paul's history as a persecutor and a murderer of Christians that gave his critics opportunity to accuse him of being an illegitimate apostle. They would say, God would never have this man represent him. Look at his history. So Paul was frequently forced to defend his position of apostolic authority. That's why Paul adds here at the end, he is an apostle by the will of God. Remember how Paul was traveling to arrest Christians in Damascus, and as he's traveling on the road, we hear in Acts chapter 9 that that the Lord literally arrested him. He appears to Paul, and Paul is blinded, as Saul at the time. He's arrested by Christ's appearance. He's blinded. And then Christ sends Saul to a believer, Ananias, a man in the city of Damascus, who, who doesn't even know this is happening. And when the believer gets word from Jesus, I'm sending you this man Saul, you're to take him and you're to teach him what I told you, and so on, the first response that the believer gives is, uh, this is the same guy that was killing Christians last time I heard. I don't really want to stand in front of this guy. And this is what Jesus says to Ananias, Acts 9.15. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my namesake. You notice that? He says, Paul was a chosen instrument of mine. So Paul didn't volunteer for this job. Paul was not recruited Paul didn't answer a want ad. This was thrust upon Paul. He literally had no choice. Jesus says Paul was a chosen instrument. He's not a volunteer. He's chosen. What's more, Paul did not choose to become a believer in Jesus Christ either. Because in the very same moment that he was chosen as an instrument, as an apostle, he was also being given faith. Remember, he was on the way to kill Christians And the Lord appears and convinces him to do otherwise. I imagine had someone come up to Saul before that moment and said to Saul, Are you interested in becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ, of suffering for the benefit of the Gentiles, and going to present the gospel to them? I am convinced he would have spit in your face. For after all, that is the common response of a Jew today. The name Jesus is said in their presence. They will literally spit. That's their response. So God did not put the question to Saul because he knew what the answer would be. And he doesn't care what we think. Not in the sense that he'll bend his plan to our will. It's always the other way around. And so the Lord arrested Saul on the road. He gave Saul a debilitating condition. He literally made him blind for a while. And then he sent him to a believer who would be the method God would use to disciple him into the faith he had already received. 
Consequently, Paul often opens his letters by explaining his role and his authority as something God willed, not something Paul willed. And it silenced those who would have claimed that Paul couldn't be trusted that his ministry started after the other apostles and after the persecution. Paul could answer that objection by simply saying, I didn't pick the timing. It's not like I signed up at a certain point when it made sense to me. God picked the timing, therefore God knew I was already going to have been the one I was, the persecutor that is, by the time he brought me into the church. This was a part of God's plan for my testimony. I'm the bad guy turned good by the grace of God. So he defended his role and his timing, saying that was all in God's plan. This ends up being a particularly important detail in light of Paul's purpose for writing to Ephesus. He's going to explain in this letter to this church the Lord's sovereign hand in our relationship with him. And what better way to prepare someone to hear about God's sovereignty than to remind them that the author of the letter is himself someone who entered into the relationship according to God's timing and God's grace, not according to his own purposes or will. And at the end of verse 1, Paul addresses the letter to those in Ephesus, who he calls those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, I'm going to start at the end there. The word in Christ Jesus, this is going to come up a lot. This is a very Pauline phrase. He uses it a lot, but he uses it a whole lot in the letter to Ephesus. And so it's important to get a sense of what we mean when we say in Christ. In Christ, simply put, means you're in the family of God by faith in Jesus Christ. We could say you're saved. That might be a very fast way of summarizing what it means to be in Christ. But the reason we say in Christ and not, for example, of Christ, is the idea of being of something suggests that we ourselves are attaching ourselves to something. Like, I'm of a certain organization. I'm of a certain perspective or a certain political point of view. And that would imply that I could go in and I can go out on my own volition. But when you're in Christ, I always like to think of it like those Russian dolls. I don't know what we call those dolls. Nesting, nesting dolls. Thank you. If I take you as one doll and put you in another one and close you inside that doll, I can't see you anymore. I just see the outer doll. And you're fully encased inside this outer doll. God puts you in Christ. And as he looks at you, he sees Christ's righteousness. And Paul uses that term in to invoke that mindset of being inside Christ. It means you're saved, and it's an issue of identity. So when he turns to the audience in Ephesus and he says, to the faithful who are in Christ Jesus, he says, before you were Roman citizens, and before you considered yourself residents of Ephesus, your identity was found in Christ. You're not an Austinite, you're not a Texan, you're not a United States citizen. You're a Christian who happens to live in a particular physical location. You go to the other side of the world, you're in Christ there just as much as you are here. Where you happen to set your two feet on this physical earth is irrelevant. It just happens to be your locale for however long you're there. And then he adds they're faithful. To be faithful doesn't mean merely to have faith. Being in Christ is to have faith. Being faithful is another thing altogether. You can be a Christian and yet not be faithful to your allegiance to the Lord. But those in Ephesus, as we studied last week, these were the faithful ones, remember? One of the things Jesus commended them on was they would not tolerate false teachers. They would not tolerate false teaching. They protected the teaching of the church. I think it's in that sense that he says this church is faithful. And then he greets his church in verse 2. He says, grace and peace from the Father and the Son. This is a classic Pauline greeting. Grace and peace. Grace and peace. He never failed to remind his readers that they were recipients of God's grace 
and of an eternal peace. Because those things go hand in hand, friends. Before you knew the grace of God by faith, you were due judgment for sin, and that would have led to the fear of death and to the fear of what comes afterward. You may not have articulated this, may not have thought much about it, but God's grace gives opportunity for us to have peace because we're no longer at odds with God. We're reconciled to God. Of course, this church had grace and peace spiritually, but here's the thing, friends, you can have it and not know it. You've received God's grace by faith, but do you live knowing you've been forgiven? Or do you live with guilt? You've been reconciled to God in peace by Christ, but do you trouble yourself with unnecessary fears? Do you have worries? Do you have struggles of this life that command so much of your attention you forget the fact that you have peace with God in eternity? Which, by the way, should weigh far heavier on your heart than anything in this life. Many Christians allow the things of this world to determine happiness, security, contentment, fulfillment. That's a normal thing for many of us, but it shouldn't be. Because if you seek for those things in the world, you're going to find yourselves going down a lot more often than you go up, in my experience. Now, if you seek for them in your relationship with Christ, though, that is, if you find fulfillment in knowing of what's coming in heaven, if you find security knowing that you can't be punished for your sin, those things start to mean more for you than what people think or what the world gives you. I mentioned last week, this is a church living in a city that is particularly worldly. It's tempting. It has distractions. It's like a combination of, I don't know, L.A., Las Vegas, and New York City. It just has all the wealth and all the temptations that go with it. And what we'll learn as we go through the letter is this church tended to lean too heavily on earthly concerns for their validation and for their satisfaction. And in the meantime, they're overlooking all of the surpassing riches of God's grace, which was already theirs by faith. Now, I'm not saying they already had it in their hand, but it was already assured. So for them, Paul says, I wish you would have grace and the peace that results from that grace in place of what you're seeking. And now, with the salutation set aside, Paul now launches into one of the most powerful theological declarations that you will find anywhere in a New Testament letter. And it's designed to remind the church of all they have received in Christ. And remember I said this letter is half doctrine, half practical application. Three chapters of doctrine, three chapters of application in the way Paul wrote the letter. And so you have to study doctrine if you're going to know how to live in response to what you learn. If doctrine bores your socks off, then I'm pretty sure when I look at your life, I'm not going to see a lot of godly choices because, friends, if you don't know what God wants, you won't do it. It's hard enough to do it even when you do know it. So Paul is going to go through three chapters of doctrine, a steady stream of truth, I call it, so that when he gets to chapters 4 through 6, he's got an audience that understands the why for what he's going to tell them to go do. The chapters of doctrine, which is obviously where we're starting, they take a unique form. Among all of Paul's letters, he does something different in Ephesus than he does in any other letter. They read almost like a prayer or like a praise spoken to God. It opens starting here in verse 3 all the way to verse 14. That's one Greek sentence. Now, in your English, out of mercy for the reader, the translators have added a few commas and periods here and there. But in reality, if you were to look at it in Greek, it's one long sentence. It's a continuous praise to the Lord for all that he's given to the believer by grace. Now, why is Paul doing this? I want you to imagine you receive a letter one day out of the blue informing you that you've been invited to join the most exclusive country club in the entire city or state. You've never applied to go there. You certainly didn't pay the membership fee. You don't even meet the qualifications. You're the last person who should be invited to join this club, but you just got the letter. Welcome. You're now a member. 
And the letter invites you to come meet with the club president so they can walk you through all the benefits of membership. You go to the club, you go to the meeting, and when you arrive, the owner gives you this long list. And on this list are all the privileges that are enjoyed by club members. And you just start listening to everything you have coming as a result of this membership that was thrust on you and you didn't even know you had it. Imagine how you would feel as you listen to all of those benefits just being rattled off. That's the way you need to understand verses 3 through 14 of chapter 1. Paul knows that he is writing to a group of status-conscious, wealth-seeking sophisticates living in a worldly city. These are the haves of the haves. These are the ones who know and have and are living in the hot seat of the province of Asia Minor. And they're focused on what that world wants. These are Christians who are faithful to true teaching, but as we looked at last week, their affections are divided. They want what God wants, but boy, they sure want what the world has. So Paul's reminding them that membership, if you will, in the family of God has privileges. And those privileges far outweigh whatever you can seek or find in Ephesus. So we're going to study these benefits one at a time, but... As I said, since verses 3 through 14 are one big long sentence, I'm going to have to divide it up, obviously, as we go. And by the way, I think Paul's choice to write this as one sentence is not for lack of commas or periods in his vocabulary. It's simply because I think he's being carried forward by the Spirit quickly from one thought to the next because as he considered one spiritual benefit, it triggered his knowledge of the next one. He saw the chain and he just rattled right through it, almost out of the excitement of it all. It's like the president who can't wait to impress you with what this club has to offer. So here's a chain of connected ideas, beginning in verse 3, with an overview. He says, Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. He begins, well, where everything begins, with the Father. Paul says, the Father is blessed, and he uses the word here not in the sense of that we've given something to the Father, but he means it in the sense of to speak well of. So Paul says, we should speak well of the Father, he should be blessed, and then he says, and we should do so because he is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now Christ Jesus, as you know, is a member of a Godhead, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together form God though with three persons. And he was the member of the Godhead who came to dwell among men, which was the plan of the Father. And in the mystery of the Trinity, we know that he was also God, even as he was created in the womb of Mary. So Jesus came forth from the Father, taking the form of man. And in that sense, what Paul is saying is, we should speak well of the Father for the plan of sending his Son to earth in that way. And furthermore, our Father has blessed his children, that is us of faith, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now I want to go through that just for a moment. Paul begins his list of privileges here for the body of Christ with this general statement. And in this general statement, there are three parts as well. And looking at each one of them in turn, let's go to the end of it first. He says, what we have received, we have received because we are in Christ. Now we've already covered the meaning of this phrase, right? So our opportunity to be blessed spiritually is the result of our relationship with Jesus Christ. So truly nothing we're going to talk about in this letter makes any sense or is at all relevant for anyone who is not a believer. If I have, for whatever reason, someone who has walked into the room today who does not know Jesus Christ, has not put their faith in Jesus Christ, you may find some of this stuff mildly interesting, but I can assure you it does not apply to you whatsoever. Not unless and until you put your trust 
in Jesus Christ. Because Christ himself is the blessed one. Yeah, that's the point. You and I, we are not blessing worthy. There's nothing about you worth blessing by God. Or me. Not on the basis of your merits. What do you merit? What does any sinful human being merit? Judgment. Our opportunity for blessing from the Father is entirely based on Christ's work on our behalf. So whatever we receive from the Father comes because the Son deserves it, not because we deserve it, and therefore the Father should be spoken well of because He has blessed His Son and then also those who are in Christ. You see the term now, in, starts to mean more in this context. If I put you inside the larger doll and I bless the larger doll, you get blessed along with it. That's the idea of this. So you should know that your blessings are the result of Christ's goodness and His work, not your own. But friends, that works to your advantage when you think about it. Because if the scriptures told you this morning that you could be blessed, but you know, here's a list of stuff you've got to do. Now we'd be sitting here wondering, I wonder if I have the, the strength to do it. I wonder if I have the patience. I wonder if I have the dedication. Maybe my blessings will come. Maybe they won't. Scripture says it's not based on what you do. It's based on what Christ did. So your confidence is in Christ's meriting those blessings, and you being in Christ, you receive them. That's a great confidence in the future. Also notice in verse 3, it's all written in the past tense. It's in the past tense. The Father has already determined to bless us because of Christ. Now, you've been in this place long enough. You've heard me talk at some point about the Bible's teaching on heavenly rewards based on our service to Christ. Yes, that is in the Bible. But the Bible also teaches that our relationship with Christ alone assures us of unimaginable blessing apart from anything we do. There is great eternal blessings to be ours as a result of our faith in Christ, and this is without question. They are not dependent on what we do. These two work together in the sense that there will be something for those who serve, but there will always be something for those who are His. And we'll talk more about the blessings as we go further in the letter, as Paul does. But for now, it's simply enough to know that the Lord has plans to bless all his children because of Christ. Now, on the other hand, and this should be obvious, as I've already said, if you have not put your trust in Jesus Christ, well then, nothing Paul says applies to you, because these things are only for Christ and those who are in him. Which leads to the, the next part of Paul's statement. He says, we have received spiritual blessings. It's become very vogue in the church today, corporately, around the world, to talk about blessings. Every pastor, it seems, and many congregations just love this word. We throw it around casually now, all the time. A new car, oh, it's a blessing. God gave me a new car, it's a blessing. A new job, oh, I'm so blessed, I got my new job. Tax refund, I didn't expect, oh, I'm so blessed, I got my tax refund. Good hair day, I'm blessed, I'm having a good hair day today. That's theoretical, because I never have a good day. And I'm being a little facetious. I know the word is meant with a genuine desire to thank the Lord for what he does. And obviously the Lord does grant us earthly blessings in various ways. I'm not denying any of that. But what I'm saying is when our focus with that word is only about the here and now, we've diminished it to its least important form. And Paul has much bigger things on his mind here, much more important things on his mind. So he emphasizes here spiritual blessings. The kind of spiritual blessing you and I can experience today as we live in our sinful body are benefits for our spiritual well-being. Things like peace, things like contentment, holiness, patience, sacrifice, courage, boldness, 
joy, compassion, humility, things of that sort. Things that we all aspire to, but let's all be honest, things we often lack, at least to the degree we we know we should obtain them, should have them. And they are not a natural part of us, not in the sense of how God expresses these things. The kind of true love that is godly does not come from within, it comes from the Spirit of the Lord. That's why the Bible calls these kinds of spiritual blessings the fruit of the Spirit. And they are the manifestation of God's love in our hearts. Some Christians, maybe many Christians, are so focused on getting material blessings that they're overlooking the superiority of spiritual blessings found in Christ. And if that's you, perhaps you have trouble understanding how spiritual blessings are of much value because you're you're struggling just to pay the bills. Or you're trying to survive the next layoff. Or you've got a broken relationship that you're trying to repair. Or you're fighting an illness or whatever it is in your life. And these things have overwhelmed you to the point that when you think of a blessing from God, your focus is entirely on that problem being resolved. And I certainly am not saying that God doesn't have those things on his mind as well. I'm not saying he's callous or uncaring for those issues in your life. Certainly he is. And it may be in his plan to present some solution to you. As a blessing, no doubt. But if that's the extent of what you think of when you ask God for a blessing, then let me encourage you, friends, to find a Christian, perhaps one who's a little more mature in their walk than we are, maybe someone who's walked ahead of us in these things, then ask them what they look for, how they approach God. Talk to the person who knows true contentment in a world that is keeping up with the Joneses. Or talk to one who has learned to forgive in a world full of hatred and vengeance. Or talk to the Christian who's found peace in knowing Christ while waiting for the kingdom rather than chasing after anything this world says is of higher value. When you find that person, and I know we've all run into someone like that at some point, don't you just look up to them and marvel at their spiritual maturity and their wisdom and centeredness. Life doesn't have to throw them to and fro. They don't seem to be the kind of person for whom it's a crisis from one week to the next week. They have things happen. Cars break down, people get sick, but it doesn't seem to stretch them and push them around like it does for you and I. Not in the same way. They'll all tell you the same thing. When you get to that person you say, how is it you're able to live this way? They'll all tell you the same thing, more or less. That they've gained something more valuable by learning to walk in the Spirit than anything they gained when they sought it in the world. And they just gave up the game. And they looked at the world through the lens of Scripture. Remember, Paul started this verse saying that we have received, past tense, every spiritual blessing in Christ. In other words, you cannot find these blessings anywhere else except in Christ. You're going to pursue peace. I mean, we all try at some level. But if you try to pursue it on earth, the irony is you literally won't find it. You already have it, he says. Have you ever seen somebody do this? Honey, where are my glasses? I like to think of that analogy whenever I think about Paul's statement in this verse of Scripture. He's saying, you've already got what it is you're spending all this time seeking for, and you're looking for it in the wrong place. It's already in you. That doesn't mean you're experiencing it, friends. This is not Vincent Van Peel, power of positive thinking message. You can't will yourself into feeling good about your life. That's not how this works. What we're saying is you seek it by seeking Christ's assurance of it in your life and the reality of it being spiritual, not physical, so that even as the rest of the world's falling apart, you're not troubled by it, not in the same way. So you can try to find contentment or security or love or affirmation or all those physical or emotional needs that you have. You can try to find them soulless in some way in this world, 
But in the end, they're never going to work, not to the satisfaction that you're seeking, because they're designed not to work. That is to say, the world's sinful nature always falls short of satisfying what we need. The true lasting spiritual blessing is found in walking with Christ by the Spirit. And it's not a recipe, it's a walk. It takes time. And then lastly, Paul says these blessings are in heavenly places, which only amplifies on the fact that you can't get them here on earth. This is going to be a real central tenet in his teaching. This idea that there are riches, there are values, there are things waiting for us, blessings in the heavenly, that trump what you find here in the earthly. And you must wait for them. You must understand that they are there. You can have a measure of them now, but you cannot replace them with things you find here in this life. The people of of Ephesus actually possess more now than their unbelieving neighbors do who they're trying to compete with. Paul's telling them they're richer now than they possibly could know. And they're distracted trying to get the wealth of Ephesus, even though the Father has reserved for them a greater wealth in heaven. The sooner you realize how rich you truly are in heaven, the sooner you relinquish the idea of getting wealthy here. That's been my experience personally. Reminds me of Aesop's fable of the dog with the bone in his mouth. You know how that story goes, right? The dog's walking along, he looks down on the river and sees a reflection of himself holding the bone, thinks it's another dog with another bone. And he's so greedy that he opens his mouth to grab the other bone only to lose the only one he had in his mouth to begin with. We all remember this story, right? Well, think of yourself in some ways as a dog in that fable. If you're the Christian trying to grasp for something in this world, forgetting you already have hold of it in the spiritual sense in your mouth, so to speak. But the irony is, as you open your mouth in this analogy to go after the earthly, you're forfeiting the heavenly, your comfort in it, your knowledge of it, because you forget you had it. So in verse 3, Paul has established really a thesis for all the doctrine he's going to teach in the next three chapters. And here's the thesis in my own words. True spiritual riches are assured for all who are in Christ Jesus. And these riches surpass anything the world may offer you. And I don't mean just physical things, but emotional things, mental things, the satisfaction of life, not merely the possessions of life. Verse 3, as I said, is like a thesis statement, an overview. But I've only started a sentence that goes 11 more verses. And so there's a lot more coming just in this opening section of doctrine. Next, here's what Paul's going to begin to do. He's going to begin to explain how each member of the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in that order, he's going to explain how each member of the Godhead works on their own part to secure the blessings for us. And the best thing about this next passage, of course, is that you and I don't appear anywhere in it. The Father's going to work, the Son's going to work, the Spirit's going to work, you do no work. So let's look what the Father's role is today. That's as far as we'll get today. What is the Father doing for us in this process? Verse 4. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed upon us in the Beloved. Well, we'll begin with the Father today, and actually we won't even finish this today, but we're going to get into it a little bit. The opening word in verse 4, just as, that doesn't really convey the Greek meaning very well. I don't know why they chose that. I wish they had done something different. The Greek word there is kathos, and it is probably better translated inasmuch as, or you could say accordingly. Paul's about to explain how we gained all of those riches. So that's what he means, just as. He means in keeping with, or according to what has been done, and then he goes on to explain it. 
And then in verse 4 through 6, he explains, well, here's what the Father did. And the Father's role in assuring us heavenly blessing was choosing and predestining us to our relationship in Christ. Paul says the Father chose us in Him. You see that? Uh, We have to be very careful as we look through this text because it's easy to run past some words and take our own thoughts and impose them onto the text rather than letting the text just speak to us. And one of those places you can run to quickly is at the beginning of verse 4 when he says he chose us in Him. Remember what we said in Him means? Him, of course, is a reference to Christ, in Christ. So he chose us in Christ. We already said, what does in Christ mean? If you are in Christ, you are saved. You are a believer. So knowing that, knowing that's a uniquely Pauline way of describing the Christian, it means that without a doubt, without any confusion, Paul just said, the Father chose us to be saved. The Father chose us to be in Christ. You know, Paul says the same thing in numerous places in Scripture. One of the easier ones to cite because it sounds similar is in 1 Corinthians 1.30. Paul says, by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Paul says we are in Christ Jesus by the Father's doing, because the Father chose us, and because of that we were found to be in Christ. Now many believers, when they get to this verse, the word chose just causes us to pause for a second, if not stumble. We ask, well, what does it mean that the Father chose us? Does it mean he he chose us over someone else? Does it mean he just chooses everyone? Does it mean that some are not chosen? Why would someone not be chosen? The questions just keep going, right, naturally. Now, I'm not going to try to address them all here today, not now, but the Bible does answer them. And in the course of this study, we're going to go through them patiently and specifically as we need to. I'm not saying we're shying away from it, not in the least. You know me, I'm, I'm not shy. But we don't want to rush through it either because the text itself drives the answers. And I'd rather let Paul speak than me. Meanwhile, though, we can't let any question you may have at this point lead you to change the basic meaning of the words on the page. Or, for that matter, to ignore them. And that's a temptation that I've run into, myself included. I've had a temptation sometimes to just say, well, it doesn't really mean what I just think it said. Because I don't really like what it just said. There's people doing that today in the Bible all over the place, right? On issues that are modern issues, societal issues of sex or family or marriage, etc. If we don't like what it says, well, we just discount it. Either Paul didn't know what he was talking about. It doesn't mean what it says. Those words aren't the same words they should be. We use the words differently than they did. Oh man, there's a hundred ways we equivocate about what the text says when we don't like it. Now, when we like it, we practically hammer people over the head with it. For example, if you think Paul didn't know what he was talking about when he talked about homosexuality, or women, or this, or that, well, why do you know that we're so sure that John meant when he said in John 3.16? How come maybe those words aren't wrong? You see how it works always to our advantage? Well, here's one of those examples in which the word just doesn't sit well with some people. And so we wonder, does it really mean what we think it means? But Paul says plainly, Paul says the Father chose us to be in Christ. The words mean exactly what they seem to mean. God selected us to be followers of Jesus Christ. By the way, that's exactly what he did for Paul. That is Paul's story, is it not? He says he was chosen by God. The story in Acts confirms he had no intention to go after Christ as a follower. He was going after Christ's followers. But Paul was chosen to believe, Paul was chosen to be an apostle, and Jesus, likewise, chose his first disciples. You might remember in John chapter 6, 
as Jesus is speaking to them at one point, in John 6.66, it says, As a result of this, this is where Jesus has just said, You must eat my body and drink my blood if you are to be one of my disciples. And he meant it spiritually, as pictured in the communion meal. But the people who heard the words thought he meant literally cannibalism, because they didn't understand it. And so they were getting a little freaked out. And some were departing him. And Jesus looked at the twelve that he had selected, and he said in verse 66, As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, You do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed. Notice where he's putting the emphasis. We have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered him, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil? Jesus corrects Peter. He says, I get what you're saying, Peter, but your theology is a little off. You didn't come looking for me. I came looking for you. I picked you. Remember how it all began in John chapter 1? The disciples that are sitting around, Nathaniel among them, Jesus finds Nathaniel sitting under a tree and tells him, I knew you were here before you even knew I was coming. You and I may not understand all the implications of this statement. I get it. And we may never fully understand them. I'll do my best to explore it with you. But if you have questions or concerns, if you have a reason to challenge whether this is the right thing for God to do or not, or maybe it doesn't agree with what you've been taught, Maybe Pastor so-and-so from that church you attended years ago told you it was something different and you've always liked what that pastor said and it's just the way you've always thought. Or maybe you came under the influence of some particular denomination or church that told you, no, 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 no. When they tell you he chose, they don't really mean that. If that's you, that's fine. But friends, give consideration to this possibility. The first answer you heard was not the right one. That's possible, isn't it? That maybe you got it wrong the first time, not the second time. And if you are one of these people with questions or doubts or concerns, friends, do not let your questions become reason to dismiss the Word of God out of hand. You can accept the truth of what God's Word says even before you understand all that it implies. Did you know that? For example, can you understand that God is one and yet also three persons? I mean, can you really understand that? Can you really figure that out? If you can, let me know. Because I'm still struggling with it. But... I can accept it. I mean, I can accept that it's true, repeat that it's true, acknowledge that it's true, and not challenge the truth of it, even though I'm at limits to explain it. Or, can you understand how God could exist before everything else did, from eternity, that God never had a beginning? Can you explain that? But you can accept it, right? Can you explain how God could be born of a woman and still be God? No, but you can accept it. We can still say, fine, God can do things I don't understand, right? So friends, likewise, can you accept the fact that the Father chose us even if this truth raises difficult questions, contradicts prior thought, doesn't fit with your view of God? Can you at least for now accept that it says that and then work to understand it with us over time? I'd hope you could. And by the way, if you're tempted to suggest that God's choice was for something less than salvation, things like he doesn't choose those who believe, he simply chooses to offer it to us. Or there's some way in which we diminish what he's saying. Look at what Paul actually says at the end of verse 4. At the end of verse 4, Paul says, The Father made this choice on our behalf so that we would become holy and blameless before him. So what does it mean to be holy and blameless? Well, in a nutshell, it means to be without judgment for sin. To be justified by the atoning work of Christ on the cross. In other words, it means to become Christian, right? There's no getting around it. That detail eliminates any other possible interpretation of what Paul is saying. 
If the result of the Father's choosing is that you would become holy and blameless, then we must say that the Father's choice is that you became a Christian. So you cannot conclude that Paul is just saying, well, the Father chose to offer us the gospel, because, friends, offering someone the gospel does not result in that person becoming holy and blameless. There's a lot of times we offer people the gospel, and they do not become holy and blameless because they reject it. This, Paul says, is something that always results in that. So the only conclusion you can make about the words here is the Father's choice directly resulted in us becoming holy and blameless in time. And that means that His choice, a choice of the Holy God that will stand, is a choice to bring us to know Christ. Look at the timing of His decision. Did He choose you and I as believers at some point in our lifetime? For example, was God's choice coming to bear the moment before we received the gospel so that we would receive it? Or maybe his choice is manifested in the moment of our confession. That's when the choice of God actually came about. Or some moment after or something. Maybe it was right after you did something extraordinarily good. And God said, oh yeah, we're going to choose this guy. Can't let that go unnoticed. That was awesome. You're chosen. Come on up. Or perhaps those who God doesn't choose are forfeiting their opportunity to be in Christ because of some terrible sin they did in their life. Is that what we're saying? No. Of course not. Because if God was choosing during our lifetimes, then you and I might conclude, probably we should conclude, that His choice was the response to something that has happened in our life. And the Lord did not want us to misunderstand how it is we found ourselves chosen in Christ. It was not something we did. It is not whether we were good or bad. It was God's choice alone. So in verse 4, Paul says, God chose us before the foundations of the world. That term, foundations of the world, it refers to the start of God's creative work in forming the universe. Paul is sort of imagining God as someone going about a massive construction project. Before that superstructure of the skyscraper emerges out of the pit, you've got to put a foundation down. We've got to lay the foundation for the, for the building. But Paul says, even before the foundation was poured, you had an architect. And that architect was drawing up plans for every step of that construction process. And those plans show in detail how that final work is going to appear when it's all said and done. But the plans are not the work. The plans are not the building. They're the design for the building. Now, Paul represents the mind of the architect here as the mind of God. Such that before he launched into the creative work of Genesis chapter 1, before that work began, before anything took shape, Paul says the Father had you and I in mind. If you could have seen the architectural drawings for creation, there is a place somewhere in those drawings with the names of all the people who are going to ultimately be called to be faithful in Christ and to arrive in the kingdom to come. Somewhere on those architectural drawings, your name existed before Genesis 1, verse 1. Go back to Genesis 1.1. Read the verse, and then I want you to consider the Lord had you on His mind even before that verse took place. Somewhere on the drawings, He had a checkbox next to your name. Chosen for Christ. Then on one day, in the course of time, God's plan unfolded. You were born, and then someday after that, you were born again. Why did the Lord make His choice before He laid even the foundations of the earth? He did that so that you could not attribute His choice to anything inside the creation. Never mind yourself, 
But he took it even a step further. You can't credit your parents. You can't credit your family line. You can't credit where you were born. You can't credit your denomination. You can't credit Christopher Columbus for discovering the new world and leading to your birth in this country where there's a great godliness and blah, blah, blah. The sentiment may be sweet, but it's complete nonsense. If you're saved, that is, if you're in Christ, you were chosen to be in Christ before the foundations of the world. You didn't earn it. You didn't even know it was coming. You weren't born in the right place. You didn't have the right upbringing. You were a check mark on an architectural drawing before God started Genesis 1-1. Just as Paul wrote when he explained why God blessed one of the twins of Rebekah and not the other. Romans 9-10, he says, And not only this, but there was Rebekah also who, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to His choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of Him who calls, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. That's a challenging part of Scripture all by itself. But it's pretty plain, isn't it? God announced to Rebekah, before she gave birth, that the younger son would be more honored than the older, which was contrary to what culture would have expected. And he's telling her this before they're born so that when it happened, she couldn't turn around, Isaac couldn't turn around, you and I couldn't turn around and say, oh, well, they just got what they deserved. There's no deserving of it. It's a choice, and God gets to make it. It's no different for us, as Paul says. Though we've only just begun to understand this point, because we have more, obviously, to cover, You can already see why this point would be important in Paul's letter to Ephesus, right? You can be assured that you have spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm because God chose you to have it before you were even born. If God's plan to bless us began even before the creation itself was formed, then what inside the creation could possibly deny us those blessings? What could frustrate God's plan if His plan predates the very creation itself? What inside creation can challenge a God who made a decision before creation. So the fact that you were chosen by God, by the Father, is immense comfort for any believer who comes to understand and rest in this truth because it denies all the worries and concerns that come to bear on our mind that say that something about living our life puts in jeopardy what we look forward to after our life. Those things were set before you were born. Even now, let the power of that truth comfort you. As Paul says in Romans 8.31, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Who is left? Let's go to prayer. Father, I thank you, Father, for patience this morning and in dealing with doctrine, difficult things of, of your word. But I suspect, Father, that the patience of our bodies wasn't necessarily mirrored in some cases with the patience of our soul. That even as we sat quietly to listen to your word, we may have been struggling and wrestling with you in our hearts. And I would be naive, Father, if I thought that today would be the only day that we would feel that wrestling. Even those of us who accept what it says, Father, wrestle with our understanding of it. And perhaps some of us are still wrestling even with the acceptance of it. But, Father, if it's true, if your words are to be taken for what they say, then it must also mean that there is goodness to be found in it. And that it could not have been any other way. So we ask, Lord, that as we continue to study in this letter and learn all that it has for us, that we would be challenged not just to hear it and not just to accept it even, but to understand how it is good. For we know you are. And the plans you have for us, Father, are wonderful. For you love us. And we know, Father, that 
you brought these things to bear in our life because you planned it. And we, we do desperately desire, Father, to understand why it is that you chose us. And we know it won't be because of us. But that doesn't mean there wasn't good reason for you in having it be that way. We'd love to know that, Father. Help us understand as we can. Help us follow you, even in spite of our lack of understanding. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.